Good morning. Curious, pretend for a moment that someone approaches you later today and asks if you would like to know the year, month, day, and hour that you would die. Would you, assuming they could tell you, would, would you want to know? We're, we're going to remove the, the, the category, well, can I change it, you know, can I, can I, can I move around, is there possible world scenarios? No, you, you, you just simply know the day, an hour. Would you want to know that? You might say yes, you know, that way I can maximize my days, I can plan accordingly, or you might say no. That clock's ticking would just start getting louder and louder. In a terrifying way. I ask because I, I think the right answer is, is no. God has given us all we need to know for life and godliness. And that's not something he's given us to know. And quite frankly, I, I don't think we can handle the information. I, I don't think we're in any way prepared to uh, wrestle with and contemplate and, and plan our lives with that kind of knowledge. This morning we're in the book of Ecclesiastes and we're we're considering matters of life and death and how to live well in this seemingly meaningless, fleeting life. How do we live the good life? Uh, If you're new, we've been walking through Ecclesiastes for some time and well, if you've been here, we've, been, we've taken two weeks off, so, so it's helpful to remember where we've been. Chapter 1 began Ecclesiastes. There's an introduction in verse 1, but then verse 2 really sets up the key word and theme of the book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's how he ends the message as well. The, the, the preacher, that is. As we've considered this, it's... How quick life goes by. How meaningless it seems. Chapter 2 is we've pursued all kinds of knowledge. We've, we've tried to gain everything. And the only thing we can say is there's nothing better for man than to eat and drink and enjoy what he has. The fruit of his toil. Chapter 3, time keeps marching on. We're out of control of what happens to us. Chapter 4, there's different difficulties we face, and yet still we all conclude it's all vanity. Chapter 5, fear God. And then 5 and 6, there's two halves to Ecclesiastes. It ends by declaring God gives everything, even the power to enjoy what he gives. We have no control over our lives. We're completely dependent upon God. And it's, it's meant to put us in this place of helplessness as we end that second half. And, and we're, we're transitioning to the next half. The first half isn't fit perfectly as a diagnosis of the problem. And the second half a, a prescription. But there, there's a way in which we can, we can see some of that happening. This morning we're, we're going to enter that second half. And it begins with just very important questions and an introduction and then another poem. Ecclesiastes, it's what we call special revelation. The the author was carried along by the Holy Spirit so we would have this for our instruction, for correction, for uh, rebuke and training. But I 
I believe it's constantly giving us, giving us at some level a, a common grace perspective, a, a, a wisdom under the sun. A, a, how do we make the best understanding of this life after sin? Almost, how do we get back to Genesis 2? And the conclusion is, any attempt on our own to get back to Genesis 2 is vanity of vanities. This morning, a key theme, really for the unit from 610 through the end of chapter 8, is how to seek wisdom. How to find the wisdom we need. We're we're only going to take a slice of it because it's enough, and after the sermon you'll say, yeah, that was enough. We're taking a slice of that unit. How do we seek wisdom? The encouraging thing I want us to hear today is God gives us the wisdom we need to pursue and enjoy the good life. God gives us the wisdom to pursue and enjoy the good life. If we're looking at chapter 6, verses 10 and 12, you're taking notes. Key question, who can tell us? Who can tell us? Notice the the, the key declarations, but but really the the key questions. Whatever has come to be has already been named. It is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of this vain life, of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Here here we see uh, some significant declarations. What has come to be has already been named. There's a a determination. God isn't named as a determiner here, but we, we will see later that he is the one who determines. There's a way in which I believe it's clear God is the stronger one that man uh, seems to want to, to wrestle with at the end of verse 10. We present here that the sense that we, we hear maybe movies, it has been written. Right? There's an oracle who's given some word and, 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 and destiny is leading. Now, if you're a Star Wars, Harry Potter, Matrix, Lego movie kind of person, you all kind of get what's going on here. It's been written. We're, we're seeing the fulfillment of the oracle being played out. Only well, here, it's not some oracle. There's a determiner is what's important. He comes to the conclusion, it's vanity. The, the, the basic statement is that what is coming in the world has been named. There's the determination. What, what man is, has is, is, is been made known. There, there, there's one who's stronger. Verse 11, the more words, the, 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 the more disputing with that one. The more vanity. What advantage does man have? Let's drop down to verse 12. The real key questions. Who knows what's good? Who can tell man what will be after him? These are the most important questions we can ask. Raise your hand if you remember your intro to philosophy class. Oh man, some people need to take some online intro to philosophy classes. Really? You didn't take intro to philosophy? Raise your hand if you enjoyed intro to philosophy. There we go. I I actually could have guessed many of those hands. We we see all the basic building blocks of a worldview here. Most importantly, importantly, epistemology. What do we know? How do we know? What can we know? Who can tell us? What is good? 
Who knows what is good? We, we, we could say ethics. What's the, what does it mean to live a good moral life? Or what is the good end of man? The, the purpose, the end, the talios. What, what is beauty? What does it mean for man to, to accomplish beauty in life? Aesthetics. What is man? How to make the most of his days. How should we live? This is philosophy. And understand philosophy is loving wisdom. So that we might actually pursue the happiest life. This is fun stuff. All right, you might not believe that yet. Who knows? Who can tell? These are big. Who, who truly knows what is good for man? Now, so important as we capture the, the flavor of our preacher and the way he, he sees man. Notice how he qualifies man. Who can tell man what is good for him? While he lives the few days of his vain life passing like a shadow. Again, did not find a coffee mug with this verse on it. But, but it's important to remember there's, there's a vanity. It's fleeting. Who can tell us how to live our best life now? The last question, who can tell him what will come after him under the sun what are the next days look like? But really, even more pressing, what happens after we die? What's the ultimate reality? These are such important questions. 2,500 years after the preacher of Ecclesiastes wrote these things, we wrestle with this all the more because of all the voices seeking to inform these questions that, that quite frankly, are mostly nonsense. How many voices are, 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 are trying to get your attention to understand what is good and what is right and what is true and what is ultimate? Well, today's wisdom says, don't listen to any voice outside, just listen to your heart. L listen to your desires and your feelings. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes would say this is foolishness. He, he at least understands help must come from outside. We, we, we can see this with how many self-help books there are at the bookstore. And, and when you go to the religion section, they're nothing more than self-help books. Notice what that says about us. How much we trust ourselves and how little we trust God. How much we think we can trust ourselves and how little we trust God. Who can tell us? Augustine wrote his autobiography. It's a unique piece of literature. The, 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 the journey he puts himself on is seeking the wise life. And he'll pick up a philosophy and he'll ask questions and nobody can answer them. And they'll say, well, no, you just got to go to the, the real sage, the, the wisest one. And every time he finds me, he's like, this guy doesn't know anything. Over and over again, he pursues wisdom in a, in a worldview, in a philosophy. And over and over again, he's, he's disappointed. And it builds up where Augustine makes it clear. He, he senses all along God is calling him. And that's, that's an important backdrop. The other important backdrop is all along his mother is praying for him. And then he comes to the conclusion, getting near his conversion, and some significant things happen to prepare him. First, he begins to hear... Ambrose, the great preacher. And he's, he's mesmerized by Scripture. He, he, he's starting to see Scripture in a whole new way as not something rudimentary, but something beautiful and true. But, but he's not ready to believe in Jesus yet. He's not ready to give his life over. And 
So then he, he shows us how he hears three testimonies preparing his heart for how people in his own walk of life, in his own job, in his own status, surrendered all to believe in Jesus. And he's, 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 he's caught in turmoil, so he goes outside and he's wrestling with what she should do. And, and then he hears this song, Tole Lege, take and read. He goes back in, he opens his Bible, and he reads. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and je- jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To gratify its desires. That's Romans 13, 13 to 14. This morning, who do you listen to? There's a beauty here of what Augustine is telling us. There's a great God who's speaking and calling. There's Praise God for his mother who's praying for him. The, the testimonies, it's the word of God ultimately that, that saved him. Are we, are we taking the, the word and making sure we're hearing God? Or are, are we coming to God and asking, help us sit under your word to hear what's true, to hear what's good? Church, I, I want to make sure we understand a principle together as to why we gather and what we do. The only thing we can do is come together and sit under Christ's word together. The only person over Christ's word is Christ. It's his word. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He's given us all his word so that we can come together and instruct one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, train one another. This is the source. Who can tell us God alone and God has spoken? Praise God for his word. Now, this next section seeks to start answering the questions. It's the third poem in Ecclesiastes. The first one, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And, well, you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten. It's not the most encouraging poem in Scripture. The second one is actually discouraging as well. Time keeps moving. It's, it's a, a harsh master. It, it, it is, is indifferent towards us. This one's getting more encouraging. There's something more instructive here. Notice the word better is the tool the author uses, the preacher uses to continue teaching us. Better continues to ring loud in this poem. Now, again, our preacher, I think, is telling us what's better. He can't quite tell us what's best yet, and we'll we'll get there, Lord willing. But the key is what's better. Our second point, there's a better way to learn. There's a better way to learn. This is the poem in the first half, verses 1 to 6. I believe there, this is all vanity, is a halfway point through this poem. Better. The, the repetition is significant. I want you to hear the things we avoid are better than the things we normally want to be drawn to. As I hear it, listen for that. A good name is better than precious ointment. That one's unique. We're going to put that away. But now listen to this, this string. And they have death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. I want to skip down to verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. 
Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fool is in the house of mirth or amusement. It is better for a man to hear rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. Those are those, those declarations of what's better. To, to go to the house of mourning. To lament. The, the sorrow is better. The house of mourning is better. Rebuke is better. Now, we could think, well, this guy is just kind of despondent, a real Debbie Downer, but it, he, he's teaching us something important. If we look at the second half of verse 1, and the day of death is better than the day of birth, it is not better to, to be dead than alive. God created us to live. I believe as we think of what's going on here, it's death is a better teacher than the day of birth. Because death teaches us something. You might be next. The day of death is a day of learning. The day of death is instructional. It, 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 the, the house of mourning is more, uh, is more helpful, is better than the house of feasting for really understanding life and what is good. To be rebuked is better than to laugh with fools. You'll, you'll learn from the house that gives you rebuke. But remember, the end of the matter of Ecclesiastes is to fear God, obey His commandments. He will judge us. I believe what our preacher is telling us in this poem is all the, the difficulties that we really avoid in our culture. They're the things that God uses to instruct us in what life is really about. Let's walk through these. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And, and, and notice they, they have a for, they have a, a rationale, and I think that's going to help inform us. Why would the house of mourning be better than the house of feasting? Because death is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay at heart. If you want to live well, you have to realize you're going to die. If you live well, you have to realize you, you might be next. It's important to, to, to recognize how our culture treats death. We're entertained by it over and over again in, in movies. And yet we avoid any real serious contemplation of it like a funeral. I've, in the funerals I go to, I, it's sad to me that the average age is 16 above. I, I think this one shows how we have too much of a divide between the older generation and the younger generation. Young folks, where are you going to really think about death? What, what are the opportunities you have to really contemplate the end so that you know how to live now in this fleeting world? Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Why? For by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. Now, this, this is no way saying the, the, the heart isn't sad. It's soon you'll be forgotten. To, to face this reality, the, the, the way to make the heart glad is to, to recognize and, 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 and see death is coming. That's the only way I'll truly know how to live in a glad way. Verses 5 and 6, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. This is, this is one long section. The crackling of thorns under a pot, it, it seems like we're trying to cook something. And, and if you cook something, you want it to get hot. 
But, but if all you're doing is putting thorns and thistles underneath the pot, it's, it's going to make a lot of cracking. It's going to have a lot of sparks. But it's not going to produce any heat. It's vanity. So too, if you're trying to find substance with just foolishness. Better is the rebuke. Better is sorrow. Better is the house of mourning. As we consider the challenge, we all would much rather be invited to a wedding than, than to plan to try to figure out how to go to a funeral. It's fun and we enjoy getting together with friends and a laugh, but we need to take seriously the, the call here. It's, there's a better aspect to contemplating difficult truths, difficult realities, difficult conversations. A friend lost his job. Someone grieving the loss of a loved one. Grieving the loss of our own loved one. I believe he's telling us these are more instructive for how to live the wise life. At the end, he says, this is all vanity. Let's go back to the house of mirth. I, I fear Neil Postman's book, which I, I have some copies, and if you're interested, amusing ourselves to death is only more true today than it was when he wrote in the 80s. We're amusing ourselves with busyness. We're amusing ourselves with isolation. But mostly we're just amusing ourselves to death. We're, we're, we're not truly thinking about the importance of what God has given us. And this is why church, we, we want to make sure we're singing contemplative songs. I want you to understand, I, we're, we're intentionally trying to train you with a way we're singing songs. That's why we sang God Moves in a Mysterious Way. To, to, to contemplate the challenges that we always don't understand what God is doing, but He's always good. Yes, there's a frowning providence, but there's, there's a smile behind it. There's the reality. We have to face the difficulties of a good Friday before we go into the Lord's Day. There's a better way. There's a better way to see wisdom. It's by remembering death. Funerals teach us an important lesson. If you missed the funeral yesterday of Michael Sprinkle... They showed a video, and the last words we considered there after that video were Michael's own words. And let me challenge you with his words. It went fast. It all went so fast. We're, we're, we're not going to know how to live this life well if we don't realize this life is fleeting. As we consider this, church, we need to be always aware there are three enemies, sin, Satan, and death. The gospel is only good news as we really consider these three enemies. And the enemy at the, the forefront here is death. Death, if we see it as it is, it's terrifying. Death, if we see it as it is, 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 is destructive. It's, a, it's, it's the grand consequence of our sin. If we let it do what it's supposed to, it should lead us to fear so that it would also lead us to Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. And the horrifying thing about death isn't that your life here is that you're going to stand before a God who's perfectly just and he is going to judge you for every sin unless you believe in Jesus who died for our sins and rose again to give us new life. This doesn't mean you don't seek to live the happy life. 
No, the happy life is one where we're contemplating the seriousness of sin, its consequence of death. Church, we, we have to be thinking and talking about these things together. I want to take the opportunity here and just give a, a pastoral comment. Right now is a uniquely blessed time in our church. There was a birth with the devils. There was a death of a family of our church. There was a funeral yesterday of a member of our church. There's an engagements. There's baptisms. Praise God, we have full life. I, I encourage you, don't be a member who's observing these things from outside. I want to encourage you, come in closer to enjoy what God has designed to be the fullness of life. Thinking about life, birth, death, enjoying these different celebrations and changes. We're, we're, we're supposed to be thinking about these things together under him. Come in closer. As we've uh, covenanted together, participate in each other's sorrows and joys. That's what makes life full. So the first part is think about death more. Find ways to think about death more so that you might know how to live. Well, the second half of this poem is a better way to live. Verses 7 to 13. He turns the emphasis and notice it goes from better. It's better to be in the house of mourning to the house of, 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 house of feasting. Uh, he starts giving more uh, instruction. More what we consider proverbial wisdom. And I want you to see something that's important as we consider 7 to 12 especially. The whole focus here is our sinful acts towards others do more damage to us. It's how our sinful actions against others do damage to us. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, our, our author has given us numerous warnings and, and, and recognized the dangers of oppression. But, but notice the danger he's focused on here. It's not the one who is oppressed that he says there's no comfort for them out of concern. But no, here it's the one who is oppressed, the one who's, who's corrupting. It, 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 it's, it's, uh, the one who does a bribe, it, it corrupts the heart. If, if, you're, so, if you're actually acting in oppression, you're... you're you're going into madness. Sin changes you. Sin hardens the heart. Your sins against others are, are, are doing more damage for you. Verse 8, better again. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Now, that, that's a grand general declaration that can mean anything, and that's why we have the second line that informs it. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Okay, the, the end is better than the beginning. Well, I believe the whole idea of patient is, is, is key there because the, the goal is that you're going to be patient enough to get to the end. Anybody can start a project. It's, it's ending the project. And notice the contrast. The patient is contrasted with the proud. There, there, there's a way in which the, the patience of trusting God, the, the patience of pursuing on, the, the patience of persevering, it's, it's better than the, the pride that might not actually finish the job. Verse 9, be not quick to anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
Again, the danger is what we're doing to ourselves with our anger. If you want to become a fool, allow yourself to be easily angered. You might say, well, well, this person just makes me angry. I have to ask, why do you give them that power? If you think somebody makes you angry, why do you give them the right and the power to, to stir that up in you? I, I don't believe there's things that should make us angry, but, but if you give somebody the power to actually make you angry, you're, you're giving them power of your own heart and your soul. You're, you're letting them choose your life. This is why we want to be committed to being slow to anger. One of the most important measures of Christian maturity is how easily, regularly, or intensely we get upset. As Paul's here when it comes to anger. There's a command, do not murder. It's a clear command of the law of God. Jesus helps us think through what that command means when he says, if you are angry, you're guilty of murder. And the whole point of the law, do not murder, which Jesus makes it clear, if you're angry, you're guilty of murder, is to help us see we, we, we're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We need forgiveness for this sin. When we see the anger inside, or, or, or the lust inside, or the coveting inside, the the idea is we're, we're supposed to see how out of control our sin is so that we might actually call out to a Savior. So that we might call out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's a way in which the law helps us see how helpless we are, how sinful we are, so that we then cry out, to Jesus. So if you're oppressing, you're leading yourself into madness. If you're not patient, you're not really fulfilling what you're committed to do, and there's pride. If you're angry, you're, well, you're embracing foolishness. Then verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, what is that question really getting at? Why were the former days better than these? These are that rose-colored lenses we put on as we get older. Oh, back then, how much better it was. Really, you've you got to avoid asking any comparison questions. As we try to tell our children, if you're keeping score, you're bound to lose. That, that kind of comparison, oh, it must have been so much better back then, and we usually remember it better than it was. The preacher says this is foolishness. I, I want to, as I wrestle with this, I, I fully feel the temptation to say today seems more out of order and more embracing chaos than in previous days. But this verse tells me that's foolish. You know, there, we used to have an old man's Sunday school class, and I remember sitting in there, and they talk about how much better it used to be, because at UVA, the, the men wore coats and ties. And I always thought, how is that better? Today, we, we live in a world that embraces and promotes LGBTQ+. And if I forgot a letter, forgive me. I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping up. Plus. We, we see this, and, and it's terrifying, and it's confusing. But can we really look back and say it's better? Well, let's wrestle with that. 
I'm a child of the 90s. We're latchkey kids. Where, where most of my friends had divorced parents, had very little parental oversight. Sex and drugs were celebrated regularly in culture. We go back a little bit further to the 60s and the sexual revolution. Right? Sex is completely removed from any kind of covenant relationship. It's just something to be enjoyed. Children become a consequence of sex. Sex is not meant to enjoy and celebrate a relationship. We should find that terrifying. You see, yesteryear wasn't better. It was just bad in a different way. And if we're being honest, the I feel this way, therefore I must be right, that's generational sin. I don't know how long ago it started being taught, but it was taught in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s. In 2010, and we're just getting more consistent with it. There's nothing new under the sun. If we want to get frustrated with the generation, get frustrated with the older generation that's teaching them this stuff. We've been teaching and embracing in our culture that if your heart tells you it's good, it must be good. Uh, Today, homosexuality being promoted is, is, is bad. But guess what? The previous generation that bullied homosexuals. That's bad. Neither one of them are good Christian activities. Generations are just bad in a different way. I say this to make sure older folks, as you look at the younger folks, don't do so with suspicion. Do so with compassion. Do so knowing that they're facing the same struggles you faced in a different way. Do so wishing that they would have somebody who could come alongside of them and walk them through the same difficulties, similar difficulties with the very word of God. We're supposed to be practicing a Titus 2 kind of discipleship. So my challenge this morning, we happen to have an older generation fellowship, which, which we're calling the OG fellowship. I have two questions to ask. I have two questions I want you to ask. First one is, where am I wrong? And what I just said, where am I wrong? I respect my elders. If you all come together and you say I'm wrong, I'm recanting first thing next Sunday. The next question is, where am I right? This generation is suffering from what our generations have promoted. And the only way to fix the way the next generation is going to go is to come alongside and make disciples of Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage of those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Notice there, wisdom is, 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 is a treasure. Wisdom is something to be protected. Wisdom is something to be pursued. 6.12. Who knows what's good? Who can tell us? This poem is telling us two very important things for us to know how to find wisdom. One, where to find it. It's in contemplating death more than contemplating amusement and celebration and foolishness. The second one is this. If you're seeking to live and practice foolishness, you will not find wisdom. If you're embracing anger, 
If you're embracing oppression, if you're treating others poorly, if you're somehow thinking yesterday used to be better, all of that is foolishness, and there's no way to find wisdom if you're practicing foolishness. Now finally, verse 13, you get a command. What we've all been waiting on. Here's the command. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We've wrestled here with what is, who, who knows the good life and uh, what, what does it mean to, to, to live the good life and how do we pursue this wisdom? Now let's consider the work of God. And that, 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 that question that qualifies it is so important because there are things that are crooked. I believe here we're referring to the adversity we face. You could be thinking of the, the folks in Mississippi who are asking, what, what is God doing? Where is God in this? Why would we lose all our homes? Why would we lose our neighbors, our friends, and our family? Many of you are asking, what, why is God bringing this adversity, the, the crookedness, as we call it here? Well, the first reason we consider the work of God is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we're going to pursue wisdom, if we're going to know wisdom, we must first know God. And wisdom recognizes that God allows and even authors adversity. What is crooked? We must know and learn how to consider the work of God. Our first question was who can tell us? Good news this morning, verse 14 tells us, God can tell us. Our last point, God can tell us. And I I want you to hear how 13 is the end of the poem, but 14 continues the thought with a clear declaration. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. Two different kinds of days, two different kinds of commands and actions. Joyful in prosperity, consider adversity. Why? God has made the one as well as the other. That's a significant thing we've got to wrestle with. But this purpose statement, get ready. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God can tell us, but here in Ecclesiastes, he's not we got to really wrestle with that. God makes the, both the day of adversity and prosperity. Praise be to God, he's sovereign. But, but here, we, we got to wrestle with the purpose so that we may not find out anything. Let's first look at these two days. The day of prosperity, the, the day of goodness, the day of pleasure, the day of celebration, the day of a, a, a full storehouse that we get to enjoy. And then the day of difficulty, when we're called to consider, to contemplate. We get to go back to that philosophy class that some of you took. And wrestle with what we call the problem of evil. But but let me just go ahead and reframe this. It's not the problem of evil, it's problems of evil. Let Let me explain. There's problems of evil. Here's a couple options. If you do not believe in a good God, you don't have a definition for evil. 
If you don't have a good God, you have no rationale for declaring anything evil. The second problem of evil, if you don't believe in a powerful God, you, you have no ability to trust that evil will be punished. He must be powerful and just to punish it. But here's the classic problem of evil as it's stated. If God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? Why does adversity exist? Well, the Bible doesn't answer that question directly, but I believe we can have a framework for how to start getting some truth. The Bible opens very clearly. God spoke things into existence. If you want to think about how powerful it is, try it. Nobody wants to try? Make the sermon shorter. Didn't work. (laughs) Might might have the opposite effect, actually. God, God spoke this beautiful earth into existence. Think about the power. He's all powerful. And then, if we want to know what kind of God he is, we, we just have to look at what kind of earth he created. Over and over again, what's repeated? It was good. It was good. It was good. God is all powerful. God is all good. And he created us with the opportunity to live in his good world under his good rule according to his good commands or to invite evil in. And that's what we did. See, the the real problem isn't that the good, powerful God permits evil. It's that the good God and powerful God allows sinners to exist. And, and, And here's the solution that God tells us about that problem. He's merciful. He's merciful. When we rebelled against God, he came pursuing us. Not to smite us. Not to destroy us. But to promise he would bring about help. He would bring life where we introduce death. He would use all of his good power, all of his powerful goodness, to reverse the curse that we introduced. You see, we... We can come to the text with questions, and God is more than happy to, 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 for us to, to ask these questions. But as we read Scripture, it, He actually gives us the framework to ask a better question. Because He might ask, well, why did God allow sin at all? You know, the more we see God and His mercy, the more it isn't, why did God allow sin? But how is God so patient? How is God so loving? How is God so kind? We need to be clear about something. God is not responsible for evil. He does not cause evil. He he cannot be tempted with evil. He, He gives good gifts. But at the same time, he is sovereign over the day of adversity. That that, that, that can be confusing. I want to appreciate that. There's many conversations we can have about that. But you see, that's what makes God awesome. Not, Not like awesome rad, but awesome awesome. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly powerful. Even to use our evil 
to accomplish what is for our good and his glory. And if you want to wrestle with this, you want to have a conversation piece to, for lunch, just look at Acts 2.23. Where we consider the cross and how according to the definite plan of God, we murdered his son who was sent to save us. We're fully responsible and God is fully sovereign to even use the most evil act to bring about what is for our good. As we consider the works of God, we could ask, why doesn't he want us to know what's going to come after us here? As I wrestle with that, I I have an answer, and you can tell me later how helpful it was or unhelpful. We too often want to put our faith in in a a certainty of the promises of what God says is going to happen, God God doesn't call us to trust exactly how the life is going to happen as he promises. No, God, God calls us to faith specifically in something else. It's faith in him. We're not called to have faith in in, in whatever understanding we have of our circumstances. We're called to have faith in him who's with us, no matter our circumstances. We're we're called to trust him, not because of some description of how he tells us what our future is going to be. No, it's that we trust him who's shown himself over and over again as a merciful, faithful, loving God. You see, what God invites us here is not to know what comes after us necessarily, but to know he's God, who's sovereign over the day of celebration. Over the day of prosperity, the day of adversity. And as we ask the question, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Well, there is a question to that. There is an answer to that question. It's God. Who can undo the work of sin and Satan? Well, only God. Who, who knows what's good for man? It's, it's God. Who can tell us what will come after us? Well, it's God. I, I believe as we left last Time in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, complete dependence, complete despair if you don't know God, but complete dependence. Now we see He is the one God who creates all things, knows all things, is sovereign over all things. I'm going to make a big leap here because of time, not because He spoke shorter sermon into existence. We started with who knows, it's only God. Who can make known only God. Our calling is to trust God. I want to jump all the way to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word, who is also the only begotten Son from the Father's bosom, He came to make God known. He he didn't come primarily to to tell us what the future is and to tell us what is going to happen after the Son. He he came first and foremost so that we know God as our Father. We know God who, who promised mercy and brought mercy. The God who promised forgiveness and He Himself accomplished that forgiveness. We could go to 1 Corinthians and see that Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. This morning, if you're looking to hear From who can tell you what is good? Here is the message of Jesus. Repent. And I'm going to 
He says, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm going to say, repent. The king has come. Repent. The king has come. Repentance means we see how foolish we are in the way we're running. We're foolish in the way we're trying to get wisdom. We're foolish in everything we do, and it's vanity of vanities. But he says, repent. Turn from our foolishness. Turn to his wisdom. Turn from our death. Turn to his life. Turn from our darkness and turn to his light. The first step we must have in faith is repentance. It's turning away so we can turn to God. God ordains all our days. Verse 14 is, is challenging here. The day of prosperity, be joyful. The day of adversity, consider God ordains all our days, and there are difficult days, and we want to make sure we're clear about that. There are difficult days, and this is why we remember the promises of God. Like we've already sung, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet as a flower. Behind every frowning providence, he hides his smiling faith. What truth can calm our hearts? God is good. God is good. Lord Jesus' other uh, invitation, come to me who are weary and I'll give you rest. Here's the hope I hold out for you. God doesn't hide what we need to know forever. It's always a temporary hiding. We can always ask, why would he hide anything at any time? But he's hiding it temporarily for our good. Know for sure he is his own interpreter. And he will speak. As we close, I I want us to to be encouraged this one simple Christian truth. Our God has spoken. Our God speaks. He, He tells us what is good for us. He tells us where to find truth. He tells us how to live a life where we can enjoy that truth. He tells us all that is good so that we might know how to live in the prosperity, or in the adversity. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you and we thank you for your kindness. That you did not leave us alone in despair after we rebelled against you, or as we still rebel against you, but you are patient, you are merciful, You are kind. You are the God who is able to make promises of salvation and you have kept those promises. Lord, as we consider and contemplate our need to hear truth and wisdom, Lord, help us to submit to your word that guides us with light, that guides us to you. Help us, Lord, to hear your invitation to know you, to consider you, to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.